Father, what a privilege is ours to be able to sing those words this morning and know that it's true that our sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. Thank you for the great work that Jesus Christ has done on our behalf, substituting into our place, accomplishing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, bringing about a righteousness that was unavailable in any other way. And thank you for the hope of heaven that that brings. And we do look forward to the day when the sky will part. and We'll see Jesus face to face. Father, thank you for the encounter with Jesus that we can have this morning through the accurate, precise, written word of God. Recorded for us by Matthew, guided by the Holy Spirit and inspired and true every word of it. Thank you that we can trust our Bibles and thank you for the encounter that he has with this young man today that we will examine. Would you use it? To encourage us, to challenge us, and to grow us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19 as we continue to work our way through this incredible gospel account. I was thinking in scriptures, the account in scripture of different occasions where people had to make a decision. On some occasions, it was great groups of people and God's people stood up and called them to make a decision. Not multiple choice between three or four things, but they had to choose one of two ways. I was thinking of of, uh, how Joshua concluded his life at the end of that great book of Joshua. uh, You remember General, General Joshua was charged with taking over Moses' position and leading the children of Israel into, into the promised land. And what a task he had. And he felt so inadequate. God promised he would be with him. He would strengthen him. And Joshua was a phenomenal leader. And at the end of his life, God had given increase. Israelite had continued to grow. They had taken over much of the area that God had promised for them. But Joshua was concerned. <laughs> That they would not, after he was gone, continue to follow after God. And remember his, his great words. It's in Joshua 24. It begins with verse 14. You don't have to turn there, but just listen. Joshua stood before the people. This is what he said. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve. In other words, you one of two choices. Serve the gods of Egypt or serve the living God. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, remember these words? Joshua said, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. A moment, a choice. Decision, really a defining moment. We have wonderful accounts like this in Scripture. I think of, of Elijah, that crusty old prophet. As he stood, I picture him standing up on a stump before the Israelites assembled there, and he, and he has that great showdown with Ahab and Jezebel and 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Molech there that ate at Queen Jezebel's table. and 
The Israelites were turning away from God and he has that great encounter. It hadn't rained for three years and they have the the showdown there on Mount Carmel. And he stands before the people and, and how long will you, he used the word, how long will you go limping along is the way he put it. How long, people, will you limp along? Choose today who you're going to serve. And he, he brought him right to the fork in the road. You've got one of two things that you have to do. And we have many accounts like that where God's people were at the fork in the road and they had to decide, am I going to do this God's way? Or am I going to do it my way or the way of the world? I want you to have that kind of mindset as we turn to Matthew chapter 19 this morning, as we have this wonderful account of our Lord dealing with a young man and, and watch how Jesus brings him to the fork in the road. It's really interesting. Let's read our text this morning. You might want to have your notes nearby. And uh, we are looking for lessons from a, what seems to be a sincere, and I believe the man was sincere. A lot of sincerely wrong people, aren't there? Uh, a sincere conversation, but a sad conversation because of how it ends. Let's read the text, and you'll probably find it familiar if you've been around church world very long. But uh, let's just break it down and understand what's happening here. We begin in Matthew chapter 19, beginning with verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him and saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. The young man said to him, he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, and can you hear him say, ah, ha. He said, ha, I've kept all of these. I think he's very happy right now. I have kept all of these. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect or complete or mature, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. We're not going to have time to finish the rest of the text. Let's read just a little bit, and we'll pick it up next week. As Jesus reminds us, um, of a challenge for us because we're wealthy people. How difficult it is for wealthy people to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? We'll pick up that part next week. Some important challenges Lessons from a sincere but sad conversation today. I think you can picture this occurring in your mind. Here's Jesus and, and this young man approaches him. Number one, we recognize that he comes and I'll be referencing the young man as he or, or him and then naming Jesus. But he, meaning the young man, verse 20 says he's a young man. If we took time to look up the parallel account in Luke chapter 18, in Luke 18, 18, it describes him as a ruler. He was evidently a younger man. That means he could have been up to about 40, 40 couple and younger. After that, he would have been esteemed as, an, as a mature man, older man. 
He was a young, up-and-coming ruler, evidently, who was involved in the synagogue. What's interesting about that is that he would have very well known the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. They called it their Bible, essentially. But he would have known the, the law of Moses and the prophets and the teaching of the Old Testament intimately. He would have spent his entire life studying. This young man, this ruler, asks Jesus a question, number one, about eternity. About eternity. Look what he says. He says, teacher, rabbi, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And you know, it was the right question, wasn't it? It was the right question. By the way, if you could ask Jesus one question, what question would you ask Jesus? I don't think this is a bad choice. But notice the parentheses that I put in the note. It was the right question, almost. Almost, because this guy's got issues. Now, I don't doubt for a minute that he was sincere. Mark chapter 10 has another parallel account and it sheds nuance on the passage. And in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, it says two things that indicate to us that this guy was pretty sincere. One is that he ran up to Jesus and the other is that he knelt down. Now, in our culture, that would be in the category of a little bit weird. A grown man running up to another grown man and getting on his knees and asking him a question. In this culture, it wasn't weird, and it was a, a picture of his acknowledgement that he considered Jesus to be a teacher in authority above himself, and he wanted to submit to him. So I, I think it's a picture of this man's sincerity. I don't think he's goofing around with Jesus. I don't think he's playing games. Sometimes people do that. Maybe you've done that before. Just kind of goof around with God, goof around with Jesus, talk the right talk, maybe ask some questions in Sunday school class, but really you don't care. It's kind of posturing. I don't think this guy's posturing. I think this guy is sincere. And he kneels before Jesus and he asks an almost good question. And the reason it's almost good is because he wants to know the secret of assuring himself that he has eternal life. That's a good question. If you haven't asked that question, you need to ask that question. How can I have eternal life? And he's talking about life in heaven. He's talking about a life of everlasting bliss in heaven. That's his mindset here. How can I make sure I'm with God in heaven, eternal bliss forever? How can I assure myself of that? And the reason it was almost a good question is because he gave away in the way he approached Jesus in the question that he struggled with a common mindset. I've seen this even often in ministry. You've seen it. A common mindset, and that is of personal works being involved in salvation. It's a, uh, the idea that there is something I must do. Look what he says. Teacher, and he, he phrases it in this kind Teacher, what good deeds? Did you see that? What good deeds must I do? If you can do good deeds and pull it off, then your salvation is contingent whom? You. Right? So he's talking about what he can do to make sure he feels better about his assurance of spending eternity in heaven. Boy, that, that common mindset of a works mentality and good works mentality, it's everywhere. You've probably encountered it. I encountered it regularly. Basically what it amounts to is just like the guy in our story, People do not like to look in the mirror and say, that's a bad person. They like to look in the mirror and they like to say, eh, made a few mistakes. Everything's not all quite right. But by and large, I'm a good guy and God knows it. 
And what do we have in our mind? This huge scale, right? We've talked about that before. The huge good works, bad works scale. That's kind of where this guy is, I think. What can I pile on my good works side of the scale so that when I stand before a holy God and he looks at me and he says, why should I let you into heaven? You know, the old scale might bounce and God's piled up everything bad I've ever done and he's piling up everything good that I've ever done on this scale. And I don't know, it's, it's kind of going and then, whoo, yeah, I knew, I knew my good works outweighed my bad works. And the guy wants to know, what can I pile in the basket on the good work scale to make sure that everything's going to be just fine? I want you to watch how our Lord masterfully just strips this guy down and forces him to admit who he is. He forces him to make a decision. Secondly, though, I want you to see as we move on that right away, Jesus, and how many of you would be surprised at this? The guy asks Jesus a question, and Jesus asks him a question immediately back. Oh, big surprise with teacher Jesus here. He, he's done it all along. You ask Jesus a question, what's he going to do? He's going to ask you a question. And so he says, wait a minute. Why, he says, why do you ask me about what is good? Don't you know, uh, don't you know that there is only one who is good? In other words, the way the guy approached Jesus and acknowledging him as a good teacher, that he was acknowledging to a certain degree uh, that, and Jesus wanted to turn it to say that, listen, only God is good. So if you're calling me good, are you calling me God? Do you understand who you're talking to? I don't think the guy got it at all. But Jesus is spiritually, technically speaking about God here, and he's acknowledging that if you're going to call me good and you understand that I'm good and you believe that I'm good, then you believe that I'm God. Because only God is really good. So he goes on then, though, and he completes the answer and he says, if you want this eternal life that you're talking about here, all right, do this. Keep the commandments. The guy then says to him, the guy says to him, well, which ones? Now, here's what Jesus is starting to do, okay? This is point number three in our outline. And what Jesus is going to do is show him that it is actually humanly impossible to keep the commandments. So Jesus points out the human impossibility of keeping the commandments. This is a very interesting point. It also is a point where some people can get confused in the story. And they think that Jesus is actually telling him he has to keep the commandments to go to heaven. Now, I guess on another point of spiritual technicality, if you could keep the commandments, God would let you into heaven. If you never, ever violated at all one commandment, ever, then God would let you into heaven. The problem is we have a sin nature and so we are incapable of keeping the commandments. And this guy right away shows his hand and he believes that he has kept these commandments. Now, let's take a look at it. So... He says immediately, verse 18, to Jesus, well, which ones? All right, which ones? And Jesus says, he rattles off five, honor your father, excuse me. Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. All right, so he's clicking these off, and this guy is 
Remember, we go back to the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount where our Lord showed us how in our hearts we can be guilty of these. And this guy was not worried about his heart attitude. He was worried only about external behavior. And the kind of commands that our Lord is clicking off to him, okay, are, okay, you shall not do murder. And the guy thinks in his mind, check. I've never pulled a knife and killed somebody. I've never hit anybody with a shovel and killed them. I'm not guilty of murder. Check. And he says, thou shalt not steal. I don't remember ever stealing. I was a good boy. I never stole. Check. And he says, it goes down his list. You shall not bear false witness. And he says to himself, I never lie. Check. Honor your father. Oh, I always honor my father and my mother. And then Jesus adds one in there. You love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man responds. Well, all of these I have kept. Yeah, I've done that. I have done that. So what I want you to understand, and it's just a little quote from William Barclay, the Bible commentator that, uh, of old, um, said this. I, I don't want you to think that Jesus is communicating him to keep the law so that he can go to heaven. Okay, what he's saying here is in the quote, the William Barclay quote is, Jesus did not point to the law to show him how to be saved, but Jesus rather was showing him that he needed to be saved by the law. But did the guy get it? He did not get it. All right. See, and in so doing, he reveals number four, his distorted sense of. Of reality. In fact, in Mark chapter 10, verse 20, in Mark's account, in chapter 10, you don't have to turn there, his response that Mark recorded to Jesus at this point was, ever since I was a youth, I have kept these. In other words, as far back in his mind as he could remember, he's known these commandments. I am confident that this man could not remember being alive and not knowing the Ten Commandments. I am sure that his parents taught him these Ten Commandments before he was old enough to remember them. All right? And he's just thinking to himself, all my life I've known these. You see, what is Jesus doing? He's holding up the law as a standard, and the guy is supposed to put himself up against it, but the law, what does the law do? You know, over in the New Testament, in the book of Galatians in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul calls the law a schoolmaster. He calls it a schoolmaster. What does the law as a schoolmaster do? It teaches us, right? See, in, in Galatians, in the New Testament, they had come to Christ by grace through faith in Christ alone. And they had left the keeping of the law for their salvation, thinking that they could keep rituals and feasts and holy days and that somehow they would be saved through the blood of lambs and goats and pigeons and doves. No, they couldn't. Only through the blood of Christ. But the Galatians, remember how the Apostle Paul said, oh, you foolish Galatians. They wanted to go back to their religiosity. They wanted to go back to the trappings of trying to keep the law. And it just, it felt good to them. They, they had checklists and they could do this. But the law was never intended to bring salvation. In fact, it cannot bring salvation. The law, the Ten Commandments, and all of the laws of God given are a schoolmaster or a standard for us, teaching us what we've done wrong so that we get the fact that we can't keep the law. Uh, some time ago when our dear brother Al Netlingham and his wife Joe moved to Michigan, 
I had driven over on the afternoon that they were to depart, and he had a few things in the garage, and uh, he had just his car, the moving van was gone, I wanted to pray with them and hug their neck before they left, and, and Al had an uh, eight-foot level, or a, at least a six-foot level, big, tall level, aluminum, cast aluminum level that was old, it was his father's, and he hadn't put it on the moving truck, it, it, it was in the corner of the garage, and he had missed it, and he was trying to figure, it was, I think it's an eight-foot level, it's huge, and he was trying to fit it in his little SUV vehicle there, and he couldn't do it, and he turned around, he came out, and he handed it to me, and said, here, Van, you can have my dad's level, it's a big old eight-foot, big level, what does a level do? Sets the standard, right? So let's say you're framing up some walls and you, you set your two by fours and you're working and you frame up your wall and you set your wall up and you nail it in place and you step back and you think, hey, looks pretty good. I did a good job. I'm really happy. Then you grab your big level and you bring it up and you plumb it up against the wall, up, up against the frame wall. Because your wife walked in and your wife looked at the wall and she said, it's crooked. <laughs> what do you mean it's crooked? It ain't crooked. I think it looks straight. And so, you should know better, but you get the level, and you put it up and you plumb it against the wall. And what does the level, the level is a schoolmaster. The level is the teacher. The level is the regulator. The level sets the standard, and you plumb it up there, and you look at your bubble, your top bubble, and sure enough, that wall's out three quarters of an inch. It's not straight, it's not plumb, it's off. How do we know we're off? By the standard, by the school teacher. That's what the law does. It's our level. This guy doesn't get that. He revealed his distorted sense of reality by saying, ever since I was young, I've kept it. But I want you to see also number five, though, that he, he admits a basic sense of insecurity. A basic sense of insecurity. Now, I've noticed a lot of people today even have this. Notice what he does. So he says... Um, the young man, verse 20, says to him, well, all of these I've kept, Mark says, since I was a youth. And then he admits his basic sense of insecurity because instead of saying, whoo, good, and leaving and going home, he keeps talking. And he says, well, what do I still lack? So was there something in the tone of Jesus' voice? What was it? See, Jesus just rattled off all the commandments. These five commandments. And I noticed that he used the back half of the Ten Commandments of the Decalogue. He used the human interaction commandments for society, for getting along with our fellow human. He didn't, he didn't deal with the front half that deals vertically with God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. He didn't deal with, thou shalt have no other gods before thee. Is this guy going to get a poke in the eye about who his real God is? You see, but I think our Lord knows a couple things. I mean, that's the understatement of the morning right there. Our Lord knows a couple things. But I, in dealing with this individual, and I think one of the lessons in evangelism about this is know who you're talking to. Know what makes them tick a little bit, if possible. But our Lord recognizes, first of all, that if he didn't keep the second half of the commandments... He probably didn't keep the first half of the commandments. Because if he had kept the first half, he would have kept the second half. You can't, you can't keep the first half and not keep the second half. All right? So if you, if you don't keep the first half, you don't keep the second half. So our Lord knew that. So he just pulls these up. The second were, these are kind of visible measurables, right? Knife, gun, murder, adultery, bed, hotel room. Not me, never. 
Never been there. No back seats. Nothing. I'm clean. See, so he could measure it out. All right. And he could check off his list. But he gives away his insecurity. He says in the second part of verse 20, but what do I still lack? I've done all this, but you see, he is still stuck. Second bullet point number five, he's still stuck on his good works, isn't he? And listen to me. When you are stuck on being good enough to get to heaven in your own works, what's going to haunt you in the back of your mind is, what else should I do to make sure God is pleased with me? It never really goes away. You might be dozing off at night and you think to yourself, what if I don't wake up in the morning? What if the old ticker just stops ticking and I enter the presence of the Lord? What am I going to... What have I done? Um, Am I good enough? And you have a fear maybe of not quite being good enough and you want to keep adding and... And you want to keep doing. And I think in the back of this guy's mind, at some level, he he just wasn't confident in his own keeping of the law. He was trying to convince himself he was good enough, but he reveals that insecurity. I wonder if you have an insecurity like that. But then Jesus masterfully now exposes this guy's life priority. It's going to show him what really matters to him. Jesus is going to force him to focus on his love for his wealth. Look what happens. He says, the young man said to him, all these I have kept, verse 20, what do I still lack? Jesus said, oh yeah, well, you know, by the way, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess. Uh Uh-oh. Now he's really getting personal. See, Jesus is honing in now on where this, this guy's boiler room. And go and get your stuff Sell what you possess and give it to the poor and then you'll have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. And 22 says, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Luke's account of this is in chapter 18 and in verse 23 of Luke 18, it says, and when he heard these things, he became, look at the words, very sad. I really want to secure eternal life, but... He became very sad for he was extremely rich. Interesting, isn't it? You see, what what Jesus is proving now is ultimately at this level, he does not love his neighbor as himself. Jesus said, you kept the commands, check, 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 and love your neighbor as yourself. And if he loved his neighbor as himself, then have a yard sale, sell all your good stuff. What the guy goes away thinking, man, I got a cabin in the mountain. I got a boat in the garage. I got my four-wheeler. I got my gun safe full of guns. I got, I got man, I got, I got, no, man, I'm not selling that stuff. And what do we learn We learn about how selfish we really are. I remember a couple weeks ago, I was referencing this point somewhere along the line about a birthday party or something at our house. And my brother-in-law, George White, was there and his wife, Rhonda, my sister and Janet's sister, Rhonda. And and I think it was Jonathan's birthday right before Christmas. Jonathan was born on December 23rd. And so the family was there and we were gathered around the table and Janet had made whatever dessert Jonathan wanted, some wonderfully outrageously delicious dessert and my brother-in-law George and I have this thing when we're together at Mamaw's house or our house having dessert we one of us will 
eventually tell the other one when dessert is being ready to be served, hey, George, you don't like this dessert. It's the one you don't like. And it's our little inside joke. It's nasty stuff. Don't eat it, meaning I want to eat it all myself. And I don't want my lousy brother-in-law to take any away from me. And so George wouldn't be fooled. And so he got some on his plate. We had him. We were serving. And we asked Rhonda, do you want some? And she said, no, I'm not eating dessert tonight. And so we served and we all went out to the dining room where we were sitting around visiting and and eating dessert together as a family. And we sat down with our desserts and immediately Rhonda reaches over with her fork and starts eating George's dessert. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm at the end of the table watching it and I reacted for George. Defend my old brother-in-law. I said, Rhonda, I'll get you dessert if you want dessert. No, no, I don't want any. And she reaches for her second bite. (laughs) I'm just going to eat George's. And... And my gut started to tighten, and I could see George inching his plate over a little bit, you see. See, that's what Jesus is talking about here. You know, you can talk about loving your neighbor as yourself, but they start putting their fork in your dessert, you find out whether you really love them or not. So if you love your neighbor as yourself, right? If you love your neighbor as yourself, think about it. Think about it. It means that the self-love you have is equal to your neighbor and it means that you're just as happy for them to have good dessert as for you to have good dessert. And I don't think any of us are there. Unless you kind of don't like the dessert. Leave your stinking hands off my dessert. I'll give you some, but this is mine. And then selfishness and pride exposes its ugly head. And then we find out that in any number of ways we violated all kinds of commandments with our imagination, with the secret dealings of our hearts. And the law is a schoolmaster and it shows us, hey, punk, you're not so good after all. And this guy, having great wealth, went away sad. You see... Jesus masterfully proved that he had not kept the law by proving that he did not love his neighbor as himself. And in so doing, number seven, he demonstrates an obvious lack of humility in this guy. An obvious lack of humility. Do you remember what we just talked about? About letting little children come to Jesus? And the text is Matthew 19, verses 13 to 15, not 14 to 16. What I wrote there is a typo. It's 13 to 15. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples, let the little children come to me because he said, for to such belongs the kingdom. Jesus used little children to illustrate the kind of humble faith that it takes to enter the kingdom. He had just taught that. And then this guy shows up and this guy becomes exhibit A on what that faith does not look like. Self-centered And proud and unwilling to lay down his agenda for Christ's agenda. He was unwilling to surrender. Unwilling to surrender to the instruction and call of Christ. And you know, this isn't new teaching. Our Lord taught in the Sermon on the Mount, didn't he? Remember back in Matthew 6, 24, about five years ago when we studied that? No one can serve two masters. Matthew 5, 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will love the one and hate the other or he'll hate the one and love the other. And then it goes on to say, and remember the King James uses that word mammon. You cannot serve both God and money. There it is. This is, what is Jesus talking about? 
Jesus is talking about what his heart attitude was and what it was he was really in love with. And this guy also proved that he was unwilling to redefine what is true wealth. He was unwilling to redefine what is true wealth. Look back up in verse 21, because when he told the guy to go sell what you have, give it to the poor, he then says, you will have treasure in heaven. It wasn't that you won't have treasure. You're just going to realign your treasure. You're going to redefine treasure. And this guy was not willing to give up what he had in his hand in this world to believe what God could offer him in the next world. Do you see how Jesus brings this guy to the fork in the road? There he is. Was that masterful or what? He just slices and dices and asks questions. And now he's got the guy standing there and he's at the fork in the road. And it's not three or four ways. It is two ways. You can either do what I'm telling you or you can do what you think, what you want. And this guy chose the wrong fork. Listen, in conclusion, let's make sure we have clear that Jesus was not promoting a works salvation. Some people wonder, do I need to sell everything I have and give it to the poor so that I can have eternal life? Do I need to do that? Um, why was Jesus saying that to this guy then? No, our Lord understood who he was talking with and he knew what this guy's idol was. He knew that he had other gods before him and he was attacking his God. And the guy refused to tear down that stronghold in his life. Sometimes other people will say, all right, what kind of formula for salvation is this then? And I want you to know, number two, that Jesus was not confusing the formula of salvation or for salvation. He was not confusing it. Because you read different accounts that, people, that Jesus had with different people, right? And in an account like with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he's talking about to Nicodemus this weird concept of you got to be born again. And then you can enter the kingdom. You got to be born again. Well, what does that mean? All right, you figure out how to get born again, and that's good. And now I come to him, and he says, you got to sell all your stuff and give it to the poor. Is he changing? What about John 3.16? That's the one I like, because it just says, Whosoever believeth, and I believe. And you know, with dealing with this guy, Jesus knew that if he just said, Hey, all you have to do is believe in me and be saved, that the guy would say, Absolutely, I believe in you. And off he would go, thinking, That's a great deal. Everything the world has in Jesus too. It's great. But Jesus just doesn't allow that with this guy. See, listen to me. Salvation is always by grace through faith in Christ alone. You say that again and then you get ready to say it with me. Salvation is always by grace. That means it's a free gift. Through faith, that is my belief in trusting him completely. This guy refused to trust Jesus. Salvation is always by grace through faith in Christ alone. Will you say that with me? Salvation is always by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's it. There's no works involved. And Jesus was not. He was, he was peeling back the layers and the trappings in this guy's life to bring him to himself. And the guy refused to be brought to Jesus. Jesus had him at the fork in the road. You got to decide now what you're going to do. You can believe me and you can trust in me and you can follow me and it will lead to everlasting life.
I don't know that Jesus was even guaranteeing the guy that that moment he would receive eternal life. But he was testing him and saying, sell your stuff, come follow me and become my disciple and you will end up entering into everlasting life as you understand the words of everlasting life that come from the master of everlasting life. And the guy stood at the fork in the road and he said, nope, it's not for me. I'm going this way. And he went away sad because like a lot of our young people, listen to me, they think if I completely give up everything for Jesus, he's just going to ruin my good times. That's what Jesus does. Jesus ruins your good times. He makes you sell your cool stuff. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. He gives you the way of everlasting life and he allows you to store up treasure in heaven. And in fact, and we'll talk about this next week in more detail, we have many testimonies in scripture of rich people who got to keep their stuff. And some of us are saying, I hope that's me. Now, what's Jesus doing? He's forcing this guy to think about what is it that you really love? Whose word are you really going to believe? You want everlasting life? You've got to believe it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes unto the Father but by me. You believe that? Have you ever been at the fork in the road? Maybe you're standing at the fork in the road today. You've got to decide. Are you going to believe and trust by grace, through faith, in the words of Jesus and the work of Jesus? Or are you going to go your own way? And try to keep the commandment and figure out your good life. That's what you got to figure out. Will you stand with me and let's bow in prayer? With our heads bowed. I think it's a good challenge today for some who are like this guy who... You look back over your life and you would say, man, I'm pretty good. Yeah, I've done pretty well. And you need the schoolmaster of the law to convict you. Every evil thought of the heart, every jealous, lustful, wicked thought of the mind that translates into hate and murder and lust and adultery to the degree that Jesus said, you violated the commands. Our absolute inability to love our neighbor as ourself. Our absolute inability in our own strength to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts. Are you kidding me? Do you know the depths of my heart and the nooks and crannies of my heart that I reserve for myself? The only way we can enter into this salvation is through the righteousness of Christ and putting our faith and trust in him alone. Will you do that today? Just say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. And I know I cannot deal with my own sin at all kinds of levels. But Jesus Christ alone took that sin upon himself. And I believe that is true for me. I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior from my sin. Only you can do that between you and God. And so, Father, you know our hearts, you know our minds. You know the slippery, deceptive nature of our hearts. Would you help us not to go away sad today as we stand at the fork in the road? Help us to choose life, choose Jesus, to follow after him with great strength and faith and enthusiasm and let him take over our lives.
and know that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Father, help us to ponder this. May your Holy Spirit use it in our lives, I pray, effectively as we go our way. In Jesus' name.